It was the afternoon of um, May 25th, 1979. It was an American Airlines flight 191 that was taking off from O'Hare when the engine fell off the left wing. Uh, the plane was in the air for approximately 90 seconds, and then it banked sharply to the left and crashed into a field right on Tui Avenue. How many of you by chance remember that incident? If you were alive of any age at all, you definitely remember it for sure. It was a shocking thing. 273 people died in that crash. I remember weeks later hearing two stories that were very intriguing. One was of a classmate of mine, a young woman, a student at Moody Bible Institute, and uh, uh, the story came out that she got stuck in traffic going from school out to O'Hare that day. And she arrived just after the gate had closed. And so uh, it, there was just the praising of God for how her life had been spared, how God sovereignly kept her from getting on that plane and lovingly saved her life. It was really a pretty you know, incredible story. But then within that same week, I read a story of a young woman, a Christian woman who rushing to get to the airport was one of the last people to get on that plane. And she died. And so you look at those two lives and you think about, okay, so the woman who was spared, was God in control in her life, but somehow he lacked control in the life of the woman who died? How, how do you explain the sovereignty of God and the control of God when it seems like some people are blessed and other people are cursed? Some people thrive and some people struggle. How does that all fit in with the idea of God being in control? That's really what we're looking at today. Um, today, we're looking at one of the teachings of Scripture that can be the most comforting of, of doctrines, but can also be one of the most troubling of scriptural teachings. And it is the premise that God is sovereign. And so that's the attribute we're focusing on this morning. And uh, if ever there was a time where I feel inadequate, it's on this topic. I feel inadequate most Sunday mornings, to be honest with you. But there are certain passages of scripture or certain topics that definitely make me feel like I wish somebody else was handling this. Uh, and uh, this is one of those mornings. And, and, and yet, I, I think it kind of speaks to the fact that there's some things that no one, virtually no one, can adequately explain. There are certain issues that uh, none of us could completely understand, at least in this life. And so in light of all that, um, I'd like to pray and, and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher as we look at his word today, okay? So let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you very much that you promised to guide us into your word that you promised to illuminate scripture for us. And so, Lord, as we consider the truth that you are sovereign, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that you'd give us teachable spirits, that, Father, you would uh, speak to us, and, God, give us the comfort and the strength 
to know that you truly are in control, Father, even when it seems like you're not. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, God is sovereign. And let's start out with a basic working definition of what we are talking about when we talk about the sovereignty of God. All right. What we're talking about is God's absolute and ultimate authority and control over all things, events, and people, whether directly or indirectly. Somebody else has said that sovereignty is the exercise of his supremacy, that God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. And so when thinking about the sovereignty of God, some of the things that were taught about just in the previous weeks are essential for God to be sovereign. God has to be all-powerful in order to be sovereign. God has to know everything in order to be sovereign. And so when looking at sovereignty, it, it, what we're really doing is we're stressing God's authority, that God not only has the knowledge and the power to be in control of our world, but he has the authority, the inherent authority to be sovereign. And you think about it, when you use the term sovereign as a noun, what does that mean? Well, that means a ruler, right? Or you call a king a sovereign. So when we, re, when we refer to Christ as being king of kings and lord of lords, it's definitely focusing on his power and his authority, his sovereignty in our world. Now, there's a closely related word to sovereignty, and it's a word you may have heard before. It's the word providence. Have you heard of the providence of God? And most of the time they're used interchangeably, but some have distinguished between the two by saying that providence is how God's sovereignty plays out. That sovereignty is God has absolute and complete authority and control, but then providence is how that's played out in our world. So uh, within uh, this time together now, I'm going to use those as interchangeable words, really, whether you call, talk about sovereignty or the providence of God. But I want to begin just as we did last week by doing just a quick survey of Scripture to see that it's clear that in God's word, he's revealed himself as the sovereign, supreme God. And so uh, let's look just quickly at a few Scriptures. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. 1 Samuel 2 verses 6 through 8 I think is some of the clearest teaching on the sovereignty of God. It says, The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor, for all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. That sounds like sovereignty to me. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. 
Psalm 135 verse six says, the Lord does whatever pleases him throughout all heaven and earth and on the seas and in their depths. Psalm 115 verse three, our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. And then finally, what I would consider to be the quintessential verse regarding the sovereignty of God and the one that has caused theologians and Bible scholars to wrestle with for centuries is Romans 9 verse 18. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so that they refuse to listen. This is definitely the revelation of a God who is completely in control and does as he pleases. But perhaps few other teachings of Scripture can sometimes be harder to accept than the idea that God is completely in control, right? Isn't that true? I mean, it would appear... All you have to do is listen to the news. And it would appear as if God isn't in control, right? With all the violence and the hatred and the division and the crime, it's like, "Mm, if God's in control, that's pretty hard to understand. It sure doesn't seem like he's in control. The premise, God is in control, tell that to a person who's been a victim of abuse, God is in control. Tell that to a family who's lost a child to cancer. How do you reconcile evil and all the horrible things that can happen to innocent people and yet still hold to the truth that God is in control? It's easy in light of all of this, the brokenness of our world, to either conclude that God really isn't completely in control, or he is, but God is a monster. God is uncaring, God is unkind, and it seems like it has to be one or the other. It's hard to understand. And then you get into the whole question of, do we have a free will? Like, can we really do what we want? Or is virtually everything we do preordained and God micromanages every aspect of our world? Now, this topic will create more questions than answers. And today, if you expect this to be all wrapped up nice and neat with a pretty bow put on top, you're going to be very, very disappointed. All right? And we're back to the idea that... um, Much of God is a mystery, and much of the ways of God is a mystery. Uh, We began this teaching series on the attributes of God by learning that we can apprehend God, but we cannot comprehend God. Comprehension uh, infers, you know, like a a complete knowledge of. And, And all we can do when we think about God is like the tip of the iceberg kind of thing. There's so much about God that is beyond us. And it's the idea that God is infinite, and we are finite, and therefore we're limited on our understanding. But that's why as people of faith, you have to become comfortable with mystery. You have to become comfortable with not understanding everything fully because that's just the way it is because of our finiteness and God's infiniteness, right? That makes sense, I hope. So I want to talk for a few minutes about as we seek to understand this a little bit, to apprehend it you know, to a certain degree, I want to talk about what God's sovereignty consists of when we talk about the will of God, what God's reign consists of. And I, I want to look at three 
wills of God. The first is what's commonly called God's determinative will. It's also called God's efficacious will. And what we mean when we talk about God's determinative will, it's his divine intervention by which he accomplishes his purposes. In other words, God has a plan and he does whatever it takes to make sure his plan gets carried out. It was his plan that the prophet Jonah would go to the city of Nineveh to preach repentance. Jonah tried to usurp the control of God and say, I'm taking off in a boat in the opposite direction. And we know what happened to Jonah, right? That God's determinative will was so determinative that God prepared a giant fish to swallow Jonah up, swim him to shore, burp him up on the shore of Nineveh and got him where he needed to go. That's what you call the determinative determinative will of God. You're not going to be able to avoid it. God's going to make it happen. In more mundane everyday terms, let me say, I think it was the determinative will of God that a handsome little boy named Dave was born on July 4th, 1960. Okay. That wasn't by chance, right? God did that at that time, at that place, in that family, because that was God's plan for me the determinative will of God. Now, the second type of will is what is, recalled, is what is called the revealed will of God. When we talk about God's revealed will, we're talking about his moral will or his standard of holiness. Here's what I mean. One of the Ten Commandments says, thou shall not commit adultery. That is God's will for the human race. Don't commit adultery. Adultery. Now, with that said, do people commit adultery? Oh, yeah, right? All the time. Now, wait a minute. We just said it was God's will that people don't commit adultery. And yet, what we find is human beings have that capacity to a certain degree in that context to tell God, forget you. I'm going to do what I want to do. My sexual behavior is going to be my private thing and not up to you. Think of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where it says God wants every person to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's God's will that every person crosses the line of faith and enters into a relationship with him. Now, with that said, does every person get saved? Does every person cross the line of faith? No. In fact, the majority of people don't. So again, we have God's will, his revealed will is clear, his standard of holiness, and yet... It's not followed out necessarily. Uh, it can be violated by our choices and by our freedom. Now, there's a third type of will, and it's what people refer to as the permissive will of God. And this relates to things morally indifferent or evil, but they're permitted to happen. And these things are contrary to his determinative determinative will, and his revealed will. And so in this category would be natural disasters, sinful choices of people, satanic influences, where God permits it. He steps aside. He turns his back. He allows it to happen. In God's permissive will, he doesn't intervene. Early in our marriage, we experienced the miscarriage of our first child. Could God have prevented that miscarriage? Yes. Did he? No. Why? Don't know. Don't know. 
Don't know if I'll ever know. I've prayed over people in the hospital. And I'll be honest with you, I've experienced a couple of what I would, would say near miracles, where people came off their deathbed and had a number of years after that. It's been pretty amazing. I've also had people, I've prayed over them, and before I got home in my car, they had passed away. It's like, why, what? How come some people raised up, some people are not? You think about 9-11, when those planes crashed into the towers. Could God have prevented those hijackings from taking place? Of course he could have. He didn't. Why didn't he? Don't know. Now, here's where we're going to get into it, so buckle your seatbelt, okay? In recent years, I've moved further and further away from the idea that God has a permissive will. I have moved further and further away from the idea that God simply steps back or turns his back on bad things and doesn't intervene and just allows it to happen. I think you have to believe in a minimum the idea of God's permissive will in order to believe in the sovereignty of God. But I think it goes beyond God simply permitting it. I honestly believe, I think God ultimately ordains virtually everything. And that can be highly problematic for some people more than others. I understand that. But it raises the questions, does God cause evil? Does he make people do evil? Is God involved in that? If so, how is he involved in that? And I want to give you a few case studies to show you from Scripture that I think God is more clearly involved in virtually everything, whether directly or indirectly, to one degree or another. And I want to take you to the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? In Genesis 37, what we learn is that Joseph's brothers hated him, they were jealous of him, they wanted to kill him, and they sold him into slavery. Now let me ask you, are all those things evil? Absolutely, not a single one of those things are within the will of God. Every single one of those things are evil. They hated, they were jealous, they wanted to kill him. They sold their own brother into slavery. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But what ended up happening? Once he was in slavery in Egypt, he rose through the ranks and became second in command. Through his ability to predict the future in his dreams, he told them a famine was coming and he saved that portion of the world from dying of hunger by preparing ahead of time for the famine. And then his family, his brothers who sold him into slavery years later are standing before him, not realizing that, that it's their own brother they sold into slavery who's now his second in command in Egypt. But look what he says to them in Genesis 45. Look at what Joseph's words are. This is really interesting. He says, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. So do you see that? Do you catch that? That even though it was his hateful, jealous, slimy, backstabbing brothers who sinned like crazy and got him to Egypt, Joseph's viewpoint was it was God who did it. Now, did that, did that uh, relieve his brothers of their moral responsibility for their behavior? Of course not. But yet at the same time, it was viewed as, hey, this is from God. And then in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph said, you intended to harm me, 
by what you did to me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And so you have this interesting juxtaposition of sinful people making sinful choices not right, can't be morally justified. They were still morally accountable for what they did. And yet it goes up against God saying, that's what I wanted. That was ultimately my will. And yet it doesn't release them from their responsibility. Let me give you another example. Let's refer again to Jonah. Jonah, when he was fleeing from God, Uh, gets on a boat and goes in the opposite direction of where God tells him to go. And once the sailor, and then they get in this giant storm, the ship is about to sink. And once the sailors determine that it's Jonah is the reason for the storm, that Jonah is the reason their boat is about to sink, uh, then it says in Jonah 1 verse 15, then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. Then go to the very next chapter. And chapter two is Jonah's prayer to God. Jonah is praying to God and he says this. He's speaking to God. He says, you threw me into the ocean depths and I sank down to the heart of the sea. Who did he say threw him in the ocean? The sailors? He said, God, you threw me in the ocean. Now, wait a minute. Chapter one, it was clear the sailors threw him. So again, we have this sinful sailors just getting rid of a problem. And yet the perspective of it was exactly what God wanted. Now, let me give you a final example. And let me preface it by asking you this question. What do you think is the most evil thing that has ever happened in this world? If you had to pick one incident in the history of the human race that we would label the most evil thing that's ever happened, I want to suggest to you it's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that the perfect, spotless Son of God who had never sinned, who was God incarnate, was mercifully, mercilessly beaten and scourged and nailed to a wood cross. I want to suggest that's by far the most evil thing that's ever taken place in our world. Now, with that said, look what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. He said this, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing wonderful miracles wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen and his what? What kind of plans? Pre-arranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. And so, it was the prearranged plan of God that Jesus would betrayed, would be betrayed. Now, with that said, does that release Judas Iscariot of his moral responsibility? Not in the least bit. Murder was wrong. The murder of Christ was the greatest injustice in the history of the world. It was done by lawless Gentiles. And yet, part of the prearranged plan of God. And then, for further insight, look at Acts chapter 4, 
verses 27 and 28. It says, in fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did, everything they did, the unjust trial, the beating, the scourging, the spitting on him, the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, the spear in his side, all of those things. Everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Was the death of Christ God's will? Absolutely. Were those involved morally responsible? Absolutely. Two truths to hold on to equally that are impossible to reconcile. God is always in control and yet he's not morally responsible for sin, and the people are always responsible for their own behavior. They always have a choice. And so you see, it's inconsistent for us, in my humble opinion, okay? And I think it's the teaching of God's word, but, but I think it's inconsistent to say, oh, that, that, that classmate of Dave's who uh, got stuck in traffic and didn't get on that plane, well, that's a miracle. That's the sovereignty of God. That's God in control and working things out. But the woman who got on the plane and died, oh, I guess God made a mistake. I guess God fell asleep and wasn't paying attention. Or I guess God must have really hated that young woman and, and, and just wanted to see her go. What? Why would we ascribe the sovereignty of God to a good situation, but then in, in, in an evil, tragic situation say, well, God's not really in control there. Or God's not nearly as loving in that situation as what he is in certain other situations. Uh, it's the idea that God, if he's in control, he's always ultimately in control. An imperfect illustration that I've heard used before is this. If I'm playing a game of pool and I go to shoot an eight ball in the corner pocket and I use the cue ball to knock in that eight ball in the corner pocket, what knocks in the eight ball? Is it me? Is it my stick? Or is it the cue ball? What knocks in that eight ball? That's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? And there, there's a chain of events. There's causes and indirect causes. There's direct causes and indirect causes. There is a cause, then there is an ultimate cause. And in the Bible, God is said to be the ultimate cause of all things in the universe, and he's not to be blamed for the moral evil people do, though he providentially governs it. God is sovereign, and therefore, I want to give you three implications for us if we believe there is no maverick molecule in the universe. If we believe that everything is ordained by God, there's three really powerful implications for each of us. The first is this. God is sovereign, therefore, we should submit to him. If God really is king, if he really is king of kings and lord of lords, then just like a peasant bowing down before their all-powerful king, you and I should voluntarily bow down before him. The peasant does it because he's afraid of getting his head lopped off if he doesn't submit to his king. 
we submit to a loving king who always has our ultimate best interests in mind and inherently deserves our submission, and we're called to do that, to trust him with our very lives, to fall in line with his revealed will. James said, so humble yourselves before God. The way we would phrase it, I think in this context, is you need to get off the throne of your life. You're not king. You're not the one in control. You need to get off the throne and give God the rightful place in your life, in control, in the throne of yours. And so I would encourage you, if you've never done so, submit your life to God. And on a daily basis, when we wake up, we have to resubmit our lives to God, that it's about him, not us, that he's in control, not me. That's what it's about. Second thing, regarding the sovereignty of God, because God is sovereign, therefore we should find comfort in him. Knowing that that nothing happens without it going through the loving and wise hands of God, we have to trust him, even sometimes when it's difficult. I love this quote. I love this quote by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said this, Jot this down if you're taking notes. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. I love that. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night. I so resonate with this. My wife and I, we've been through trials in the time we've been married that I would have never ever dreamed we'd have to go through. Some of you, I want to address something. If any of you have the impression that pastors and pastors' families live in a protective bubble, I want to burst that bubble for you right now, okay? Not true in the least bit. And you know what? We've been through some incredibly dark and difficult times with our family. And I've got to tell you this, that if I thought it was all a matter of random chance or bad luck, I would have lost my mind. I would, I would have lost it. But even in the darkest of times, I clung to the belief that God loves me, that God is in control. I don't understand what's happening, but I'm going to cling to him believing that God is sovereign. Anything that enters your life, if you love God, has first passed through the loving and wise hands of our Father. Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Final implication, because God is sovereign, we should therefore worship him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is inherently worthy of our worship. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure. No one can measure his greatness. And so we should worship him with our lives. We should worship him as we gather on Sunday mornings. Choose to hold these truths in your hand. That God is completely in control, and always has our best interests in mind. And we live in a broken world where horrible things happen, and ultimately God's purposes will be worked out, though sometimes we can't see it and we don't understand it. 
I'd like to tell you a story that happened just yesterday. And I think this may be the greatest illustration in the history of preaching. Or it might be like the worst illustration. And I'll leave that up to you. Okay? Or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Who knows, right? I don't know. But here's the story. My, uh, for, for a couple months now, Karen and I have the same breakfast together every morning. We make this smoothie with like good stuff in it. You know, it's very healthy. It's kind of disgusting, but you know, it's, no, actually it tastes good. It tastes good. Well, here's the deal. She had to go to work early. And, and so she made her smoothie first. And then later on, I got up and I made mine separately. Well, one of the ingredients for our smoothie is green tea. We keep green tea in the fridge and that's the liquid for our smoothie. Well, I go to make my smoothie and there's no green tea. There was no green tea in the fridge. But here's the deal. I know my wife, we've been married for a long time and she's one of the most thoughtful, serving people in the world. And I was like, there's no way she'd leave me without tea. There is no way she would leave me without tea. So I went through every shelf of the fridge. Have you ever gone through your fridge and you're literally touching everything in it, <laughs> looking, looking for what you're looking for? Because I was like, I know my wife. I know her character. She would never leave me without tea. So I'm looking all through the fridge. It's not there. So I looked all over the kitchen counters. I was like, it's got to be here somewhere. I was so sure of my wife's character that she would never leave me without tea that I actually went into the bathroom and looked for the tea. I went into our living room and looked around on the floor and on the end tables for our tea because this is what I knew. Even though I couldn't find the tea, I knew my wife's character and I knew she would never leave me. She would never use up the last of the tea and not make more for me because I knew her character. Now, my circumstances were saying otherwise. My circumstances were saying, you got dog, Dave. She used it up. You don't have any for your smoothie. That's what my circumstances were saying. But my experience with my wife, and I knew her character. I was confident of her character. And I said, there's no way. Do you see the connection I'm making here? Do you see the connection I'm making here? That... When our circumstances appear as if God has turned his back on us, when we've been abandoned by him, when the circumstances of our life just say, God, why do you hate me? God, what have I done wrong? And life just is falling apart. That's where we can't discern who God is based on our circumstances. It has to be on who he's revealed himself to be, who we know him to be from our relationship with him. And that is what we stake our claim on in our relationship with God. We know who he is, so when our circumstances are bad, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why it's the way it is, but I know God loves me. I know he's in control. I know his best interests in mind, even when I can't understand my circumstances. The rest of the story, (laughs) after about 15 minutes of looking, the green tea was on our back deck outside our back door. She She had put it out there so it would cool off after making it hot. I knew I was right. I knew I was right. I knew my wife. There's no way she would use the last of it and and leave me without any. I, I just knew it. My friends, understand you know who God is. He's loving. 
He's generous. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He's merciful. He's just. He's in control. And so because that's true, because God is sovereign, that's the pillow upon which you can lay your head at night. Because God is in control.